You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. And welcome to the Week Ahead podcast with Chuck and Rachel. This week we are heading to Chicago, both of us, for the first time in a long time. We will be together along with, are we ready to make our announcement about... No, not yet. No? Okay. Along with some other people (laughs) that we're looking forward to seeing. Yeah, top secret meaning. Wait, I don't even know. Are any of the board members going to be there? No, no, we were going to try to pull that off, but it didn't work. Oh, they, okay. uh, they have, okay. they have lives and things, you know? Yeah. There's such a pain. Lives. Yeah, I know. Okay. So we're meeting in Chicago and, but you're also speaking in Aurora, Illinois, which is a place I've never heard of. I'll be honest. Um, but it's, it's, a, a, suburb. it's a suburb. It's a, it's a suburb of Chicago. Yeah. All right. Cool. And you're speaking at the Metropolitan Agency for Planning. Do you know what you're going to be talking about? Uh, yeah, well, it's a, it actually is a panel discussion. So I'm one of three or four panelists and we're going to largely be talking about transportation planning and, uh, this is a region where they're looking to do, uh, update their long-term transportation plan. I want to say that like they're tra- they're planning through 2050. And oh so, <laughs> yeah, so I, I have, I told them, I said, I'm, I'm going to be a contrarian voice. And uh, they said, good, that's why we wanted you here. So, yeah, it'll be an interesting conversation. And last week you were in Tacoma, Washington, which you wrote a little bit about today in your piece, uh, The Ideology of Traffic. Yeah. Tell me, tell me about the event in Washington and what inspired today's piece. Well, it was really great because it was a gathering of like, state transportation officials. And it was it was a big deal. the uh, The opening keynote was like some fighter pilot guy, Whoa. giving him like a pep talk on teamwork and all this. Yeah, he was really uh, very dramatic. Um, yeah, it was it was really like you know hoo kind of like fist pumps in the air and stuff. And yeah, it was pretty crazy. Um, they had me do. Uh, I did the breakout session in the morning on transportation. And then they want me to do the same exact presentation in the afternoon. So the idea was you, you go to this thing, you go to the morning keynote, then you have your choice of one of three breakout sessions, then you have a lunch address, and then in the afternoon, you can pick <laughs> of the other two you didn't go to, you can pick one of those. Mm-hmm. I think what was really cool is that I had a lot of, you know, we, the first, the morning session was packed. I mean, there were people standing in the back and it was... Is huge. There's a couple hundred people in the room at least. And uh, yeah, and then in the afternoon session, uh, it just occurred to me before I started, I'm like, how many of you people are here for a second time? And probably a couple dozen people who uh, just came came right back to hear the whole thing again, which I'm like, that is a, that's cool. So yeah, uh, I did the whole presentation a second time. The room was packed again, standing room only in the back. And we had a really good conversation about transportation. Uh, you know, when, when I speak to technical audiences like that, it's, it's really – sometimes, uh, you know, that was where I used to have all the trouble, actually. And I think we've gotten to the point – you know, my, my, tech, my approach has improved a lot, I'm sure. 
But I think also our conversation has gotten to the point now where it's, uh, it's different in terms of how we approach technical audiences. Uh, they used to just get mad at me, like, you know, you're a heretic. Mm-hmm. And now it's not. Which you kind of are. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. But, you know, you're a heretic is the way to not listen to you. Mm-hmm. And now it is, uh, it is not you're a heretic. It's, wow, okay, this is new stuff and I appreciate it and it's interesting. So had a really like positive experience and, and really good feedback. That's good. Yeah. Now we've been to Wash. It feels like you've been to Washington so many times over the last few months. Is that yeah. like at least three or maybe I'm confusing it with Oregon no, no. too. I, I was I've, in Seattle. I've been to that region a lot. Yep. Well, I spent a lot of time in Oregon in October, mm-hmm. and I was in Seattle, and I was in Bellingham. Bellingham, right? Yep. Yeah. And uh, this was this is south is Tacoma South, uh, so I'm you know about half an hour south of Seattle. So, Just um, saturating the Pacific Northwest with the yeah. strong message. Well, and I, I, it's a very interesting part of the world because, you know, the, the, I know particularly from a transportation standpoint, uh, there's a lot of people who want to do things differently. I think there's an embrace of – there's an open mindset to change. They kind of have two burdens, though, and that, that are unique to them. I mean, the first one, everything along the West Coast – uh, pretty much is suburban experiment. I mean, there's very little pre-World War II stuff there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, as a percentage of what has been built, it's a very small percentage. And so they're, they're kind of burdened with these really expensive, unproductive transportation systems. And that's a really hard thing to come to grips with, and it's really hard to know what, what to do next. You also have the the thing where they have this propensity for these big projects. They are kind of a uh, they have a kind of a centralized, top down mentality to a degree. I mean, California, mm-hmm. Oregon, and, and Washington State, all three are very comfortable with large centralized government approaches as just a, a you know a cultural. There's a cultural acceptance of that, and mm-hmm. sometimes you get you know Portland's transit system. Sometimes you get the Big Bertha Tunnel and, <laughs> yep. you know, it, it's uh, the kind of two sides of the same sword, right? It's the uh, it's the Robert Moses means that we talk about. And, you know, uh, it, it, it cuts both ways in a sense. Yeah, it, this reminds me of um, this week will be well, the next two weeks we'll be sharing our best content from 2016. And as I was reviewing stuff, um, I came across some of the stuff that we published during No New Roads Week all the way back in January. And one of our members, Paula Reeves, was writing about Washington, since that was kind of one of the states that we focused on during that week. And she wrote that Washington, which is known for having one of the greenest administrations, and, you know, we think of it as, you know, this hipster, you know, fair trade coffee, and everyone bikes everywhere, um, super liberal, but they just passed the largest transportation spending bill in state history. And that was written back in January, but yeah, it just like nobody is is free of yeah excessive transportation spending, bad public decision making, uh, even if you think you're you know right. super green and bike well, friendly and, and all that stuff. Not only was it the biggest one in state history, but it included lots and lots of of new highway spending and uh, you know tr- new basically new construction of auto oriented infrastructure and. Yeah, I, I can't remember what the percentage was, but it was huge. 
they the the debate they had and we had Mike McGinn on once talking about this the former mayor of Seattle and I mean he said you know the 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 thing here is that the highway people are essentially bribing the bike walk transit people with you know what we see in every state really which is a you know right now you get hardly anything we'll give you five times what you're getting now if you come along with us it still is only 10 or 20% of the overall budget but it's way more than what you're getting now. Um, but to get it, you have to agree to build all these new highways and do all this really destructive stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Mike says, I don't support that. Uh, but there's a lot of uh, a lot of people involved in the system who do. So your visit to Washington was an inspiration for today's post on the ideology of traffic. And yeah. you talked a lot about the ideology of traffic engineers and what that leads them to create. Tell me, tell me about that. It's really, I, I realized this a, a long time ago that the way we go about designing transportation systems reflects an internal set of values that as engineers, we never question. We don't, we don't think of them as values. We just think of them as design. And this became crystal to me when I was listening to a speech by Tomas Sedlicek, the economist, that I've written about a number of times this year. And, and he said the statement, something like the statement that I opened up the piece with today, which is the, the ultimate uh, win or the ultimate victory for any ideology is to not be considered an ideology. You know, if you, mm-hmm. if you have a belief system and no one considers it a belief, but they just consider it reality. Now, now you've won, right? Mm-hmm. You've, you've reached the ultimate spot. I mean, Christianity has never reached that spot, right? <laughs> and so when I look at design and the way we go about designing highways and, and roads and streets, the values embedded in that are just given that they're mm-hmm. not debated. They're not discussed. Um, no one wrestles over them intellectually in any way. It's just, you know, the way things are done. So I had this thing that I do with crowds and I, I was really pleased to be able to do it with a crowd of engineers where I'll, I'll lay out the four criteria, the, the four values that engineers apply when they're designing a street. The first one is speed. What is the design speed that we're trying to use? The second one is a traffic volume. What's the volume of traffic we're trying to move? Given those two things, then what does the manual say is the safe cross-section we should use? Um, and then given that, how much is it going to cost? And so when you look at those values, you start with speed and then volume, and then you get to safety and cost. When I ask people what their values are, and I say, you know, open them up. Let's just talk about values. Let's not talk about design. Let's talk about values. They always put safety first. I mean, of course, crowds of engineers yeah. do, but, but everybody does put safety first. Second, they will put cost. Third, they'll put volume every single time. And then last, they put speed. And so... The, the takeaway from it, you know, right now the engineering profession starts with speed and everything adapts to that. And the reality is, is that our values suggest that speed should be the thing that should be adapted to meet the rest of our values. And, you know, it, it's a complete inversion. And so, I, you know, I think when we recognize that it's not an engineering conversation, it's actually a values conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can actually start talking about these things differently and get to a place where we can, I think, have a more productive conversation. So what do you think it will take for 
traffic engineers to change that mindset? Uh, I, 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 I Besides mean, strong towns. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, hopefully we are, I, I know we're having a big impact on the conversation. Uh, there's a lot more, it's a lot more strong towns talk going on now than there was say five years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I do think that the credibility of that conversation is enhanced when we have tighter budgets and you know, I, I'm, I'm not advocating for cutting budgets so we have a better conversation. Um, but, but you know, we've, we've built more than we can maintain. And the more that mm-hmm. becomes apparent, the more people start to become open to, to challenging their own belief system. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also think that generationally, and I, I, I'm going to say this in a kind way, and I, I don't, I'm not trying to paint with a broad brush here, but I think generationally as people enter the profession who don't have decades and decades and decades of doing things a certain way, I think they will just naturally be more open to different ideas. Yeah. As long as the engineering schools are teaching those new ideas or they're being exposed to them in in some other way. And they, they are, they, they will be. I I think the toughest thing about, um, you know, the toughest thing about the engineering profession and ideas is that once you graduate, you have four years of essentially apprenticeship before you can get your license. And there's a, there's a lot of um, pressure in that apprenticeship and, and, and subsequent because of the process you go through to essentially conform to industry norms. There's mm, kind of okay. a, a reinforcing process that happens. But, you know, it's I, my father-in-law, who's in his mid-70s, is a civil engineer and was involved in like the early highway days. And, you know, he's he, he is sympathetic to the stuff we do, but to a point. Um, and I respect that. It's really hard. It, it would be really hard for someone of his generation to look back and say, wow, um, we really screwed up. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we should not have done that. And yeah. I get why that's a, a harder conversation to have than to someone who say, you know, 24 has, has never, you know, doesn't have decades of stuff of, of their, you know, of their work experience vested in a certain approach. I think that will just continue to open things up a little bit. I think one other aspect of kind of changing this paradigm that stood out to me when I was reading your piece was at the end you say um, let's apply a contrasting value system and talk about building wealth instead of moving traffic and then you juxtapose a series of quotes and kind of rephrase them to talk about wealth creation instead of traffic. A traffic engineer or you know a transportation engineer I mean they are being told that their job is to move traffic. So there's going to need to be more, I think, um, cross-pollination and government uh, employees like working with other departments and one another um, if, if we're going to reorient towards engineers thinking about wealth creation instead of just moving cars. Right. I, I do think, and one of the reasons why I use wealth creation, wealth creation actually encompasses a whole lot of different things. Um, but it's also the uh, kind of the metric that was used pre-suburban experiment. It, it, after World War II, we asked engineers to do a very specific thing. Because, uh, you know, we were asking engineers to accomplish something mm-hmm. you know, remarkable in a very short period of time, we kind of let all the other complexity fall to the wayside. I mean, mm-hmm. we had a highway system to build. We had a country to, to make sure it didn't fall back into depression. Uh, we had a, a lot of things to accomplish. And so 
in a sense, we simplified our approach uh, down to like the basic metrics of moving traffic. The world's so much more complicated today. And to just keep that very narrow focus, uh, you know, I, I think not only does the profession a disservice, but the society one. But yeah, if we're going to talk about, you know, wealth creation, uh, I'll read one of the things, you know, one of the statements in this article I was quoting from, it said the streets are being engineered to create traffic congestion. And I said that that comes from an <laughs> ideology of traffic. Like that's what streets are about. But if we approach it with an ideology of wealth creation, so the words we're about creating wealth, which is balancing a lot of different priorities to create a great place. We would say instead of the city streets are being engineered to create traffic congestion, we would say the city streets are being engineered to make property more valuable, encourage investment, and improve the city's tax base while reducing its overall cost. It's the same thing. It's just a different, it's the same outcome. It's just a different set of values we apply to it. And when you apply a different set of values, um, you know, the, the, the things that you're trying to battle today become actually things you can embrace, like congestion. Like I mentioned earlier, in the next two weeks, we'll be running our best content of 2016 uh, as chosen by us. <laughs> so, some of it takes into account what was most popular, and some of it is just what we felt um, best exemplifies our work this year. Um, how are you feeling about that, Chuck? Are you looking forward to sharing those, those pieces and re, uh, kind of repackaging them and commenting on them? I do like this time of year. You know, we, we have this tradition and we've done this ever since I started writing, uh, where at the end of the year, we take a couple of weeks off and, uh, just kind of mentally retool. And the, the couple of weeks prior to that, we cut back on the new stuff we do and we run a lot of the, the best of, and I, I like it because I, I like the, the ability to have a little bit of time to focus on, you know, not what's going to come out tomorrow, but look a little longer term. Mm -hmm. I also just enjoy looking back at what we did. Um, I'm always amazed every year at the stuff we are, have been able to do and how it kind of holds its own even months later and years later. You know, John uh, Reuter, one of our board members, uh, talking about the, uh, the list we were on where we moved up to number 12. Uh, mm -hmm. we, we were number 16 last year in terms of most popular urban planning sites. Yeah, this and, is the website Global Grid created a list of the top 20 urban planning sites. Yeah. We were number 12. Mm -hmm. We were not on it two years ago. Last year we were number 16. This year we were number 12. And John made, John made the point, um, if you look at uh, the 11 before us, probably eight or nine of those were deeply involved in, in like uh, what I would call like election clickbait, you know, Mm -hmm. um, they were very and they're much, like huge websites with like advertisements and several. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, they have huge staffs and huge yeah. budgets. Um, but, you know, from a traffic standpoint, um, we're starting to get in that ballpark. You know, I mean, it's not like we're it's not like we're like way, way, way back in that department. I mean, we're 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 starting to play in that league a little bit. But, you know, we did that. We made that jump without the benefit of, you know, if Trump is elected, here's how, you know, the five things that will destroy the world. And, you know, <laughs> if Hillary Clinton is elected, here's how, you know, this will all go bad. Those things are like really great clickbait for people during an election season. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we're not that's not us. That's not the way we roll. 
So, you know, I, I, I enjoy looking back because I feel like I feel very proud of the body of work we put out consistently year after year after year. And I think it holds its own, you know, even though the election has passed and times have changed and, and we move on, our stuff seems to wear very well over time. Yeah, I've really enjoyed the exercise of going back and reading through our stuff. And actually, I think a lot of people don't realize this, and we don't make it super obvious on our website. Maybe we should do a better job of that. But there is a way to see every single article we've ever written in a nice format, um, our archives. So I'll include a link to that. But if you're if you're really interested in seeing everything we've done this year, you can uh, go dive deep on that. It's pretty crazy. You know, I, we we put out a ton of content, and I'm I'm just astounded, actually. Yeah, this year has been a busy one. Yeah, I'm looking forward to a little bit of a break, though. And yeah, do some I, writing during that time as well. I, I I'm I've got two big writing projects I'm going to be working on after we get back from Chicago, and uh, lots of stuff to lots of stuff to talk about there. But yeah, it's it, it's funny because. I, I, I look at some of the stuff we did years ago and I'm very proud of it because like I said, it's worn well. Um, in many ways now, like our, our conversation's more complex. Um, you know, this, mm. the stuff, uh, the series I wrote about understanding growth, I, I couldn't have written that four years ago. Um, mm-hmm. mostly because like I, I didn't understand enough to even ask the questions that those, that piece kind of asked, mm-hmm. you know, four years ago. So that's exciting. The other part of this, though, that I keep having to remind myself, you know, our audience right now is double the size it was a year ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a, a lot of people that we picked up throughout the year that didn't read that stuff we wrote in the first quarter or the second quarter. And so going back and pulling some of that now and uh, re-releasing it, I think, is a, a good way to kind of solidify everybody uh, at the end of the year here so we're all... We're all got the best of. We're all on the same page in terms of the highlights. Yeah, I definitely agree. Well, before we close, I want to welcome our newest Strong Towns members. Uh, this last week, Benjamin Darfler from Trumansburg, New York, Gregory Prestamon from St. Charles, Missouri, Morgan Goodwin from Truckee, California, Sean Meredith from Los Angeles, California, Davis Winslow from Brooklyn, New York, and Catherine Lally from Shelburne, Vermont. So thank you, everyone, and welcome to Strong Towns. And for the people listening who aren't members, um, we are getting to the end of the year, and um, membership with Strong Towns, a 501c3, is a tax deduction. So um, we know that that would not be your only motivation for becoming a member. But if that's a little nudge to get it done before the end of the year, um, please, please do that. Never hurts. I feel like um, the last last couple weeks... I've been kind of working on, you know, getting ready for next year or thinking about, uh, you know, our, our get together this week and, and some of the stuff. And I'm, I'm excited. You know, I, I, I know <laughs> I just got done doing a, an hour long podcast with Seth Zarin that will come out after this one. Um, yeah, we have a lot of podcasts. Today. Oh, we do we have a lot of content. Um, Seth is kind of like, it was kind of like a therapy session for me. We, we just talked <laughs> about, the the election and how people have reacted and the changes that are happening and and I really feel more than ever, you know, as we end this year and kind of get ready for 2017, that the work we're doing is so important. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there, there's there's nobody having a conversation like this, 
And I, I really, you know, I, I'm looking forward to, because our, our listeners, our readers, our members have given us a, a, an even bigger platform now than we had a year ago. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited to take that and do something with it, you know, do, do, do even more with it next year. Yeah. 2017 is going to be an exciting year. Yeah, no doubt. Oh, I want to mention something before we close, which is that on Thursday of this week, we will have a special webcast. Um, it's called creating a strong towns comp plan. It'll be hosted by Kevin Shepard, who's a strong towns member and, uh, uh, contributor um a supporter of us at the organizational level and he's going to be talking about yeah building strong towns principles into your government's plans and strategies and this is a presentation that he's given before i think chuck you saw him give this presentation yeah so we well i was a good yeah one. no i was there at a conference when he gave it and i said oh my gosh you got to do <laughs> you have to you have to share this Ke kevin has been trying to crack a really tough nut which is how to apply strong towns principles in a comp plan Comp planning is kind of the, in many ways, the antithesis of strong towns uh, <laughs> principles, you know, uh, especially the way we go about doing it today. But, you know, it's an important thing, too. So how do you do it in a way that captures a, a strong towns conversation? And he did this presentation that showed uh, what they have done. And I was deeply impressed. So, yeah, I'm, I'm super thrilled to be sharing that with everybody. Yeah, that'll be on Thursday at 12 p.m. Central. And if you're a Strong Towns member, you should have received an invite in your email to this. Um, this is a members-only webcast, one of the ways that we say thank you to our members for supporting us. And if you're not a member yet, um, you can still join before Thursday, and you'll get a link to that webcast. So we hope to see a lot of you uh, participating in that one. Um, okay, well, have a great week, everyone, and we'll have a, another podcast for you on Thursday. Thanks, everybody. We need your help. If you think the Strong Town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org.